Next week, all the middle schoolers are going to come to my house. So start praying right now, okay? Um, but if you know of any middle schooler whatsoever, uh, please invite them because uh, we're really excited. Um, they had a great time a couple weeks ago, and uh, tonight I'm, I heard they're having some kind of food eating kind of fear factor thing. So uh, it's going to be fun. Well, uh, today we're in uh, our second part of our new series called Baggage. And if you were not here last week because of Labor Day weekend, um, I just encourage you to pick up a free CD in the back so you, uh, you kind of get that uh, about controlling families. And uh, today we're going to talk about conditional uh, families. Uh, this whole series, we have been focusing on the family. And what I want to do to just begin with is uh, I'd like all of you to stand up who uh, have a perfect family. So go ahead, stand up. Okay, we have a couple young kids that they're just not old enough yet, but they will soon learn that uh, there is no such thing as a perfect family. That's the point. All of us know that our families are not perfect. We all come from broken places, but God wants to make us better. Wherever we're at on the spectrum of life, God wants to help take some steps to make our families better. And that's what I really hope for um, at the end of October 3rd, is that your family will have some tools to be healthier than they are today. Now, uh, a, a picture will come up here on the board. Anybody uh, know what that game's called? That's real difficult, isn't it? The Life. How many of you played that game growing up as a kid? Sure, sure, a lot of us did. And you can play that same game next week at the Life Courts. Okay? We actually pull out the game and you get to play it. The only thing that's not on that board is God and church. And that's basically what the life course is. How you can get more connected to the church and uh, more connected with God. So next week, uh, if you want to be a partner, uh, kind of member of this place, uh, we'd encourage you to come and be a part of that. Now the reality is, every single person in this place uh, had the opportunity to play this game. I uh, found out this week that it was invented in 1871. And uh, everyone who was a part of inventing the game of life is now dead. <laughs> Do you find that ironic or what? I mean, they are. You know, none of them are, are around. Um, but I guess the newest edition of this game no longer has paper money. They just have credit cards. And you just kind of swipe yourself all the way through life. And no longer do they have those little cars, but they have minivans. And uh, you use your minivan. And uh, they still have those little pegs, you know, the pink one for the female and the blue one for the male. And you put them in your little minivan now, and then you go around this board. Now, whoever wins the game of life at the end, they get to retire and they become a millionaire. That's how you win. But as a kid, I always thought about it. Once you retire and you become a millionaire, what do you think happens next? You die. And uh, I know I was kind of a messed up kid, 
But it was kind of a depressing game for me. I mean, you just could not spin the wheel and kind of go back and start over again uh, once you get to that point. Now, with this game, you can. You can play this game over and over and over and over and over again. But the reality is, you can't do life over again. I mean, we wish we could all spin the wheel and we could go back and we could start over, but you can't. Wherever you are right now in this moment is where you're at. We can't get into some time machine and go back in time. But we simply have to play the cards that we have been dealt with the best way that we know how to play it. Because you have, and I have, only one life. Now here's the amazing thing. God loves to redeem things. He loves to buy things back. He likes to make things better. He enjoys giving people second chances. Now this is not like starting over. I mean, God likes to take people in the middle of the mess and make them better. I think that's a lot uh, harder than it is simply to start all over again. He's like, he looks at people and he's like, every single person gave up on this guy, but I didn't. And now, look at what they're doing for me. I mean, God loves to take completely broken, destroyed, foul kind of people and make them gentle and lovable. That's just what God's into, taking messed up lives and making them better. I mean, he's so powerful that he could choose to start all over again. But what he does instead is he takes the ingredients of broken lives and he mixes them all together and he makes something better. That's what we believe uh, about him here at the jar. That what God likes to do is he takes broken and cracked jars. And if you've ever wondered, where's that name come from? He takes broken and cracked jars, it says in uh, 1 Corinthians 4. And he has the ability to mold and shape and make them better. And sometimes it takes a long time for him to do that. But he does it when we stay connected to him. Now, the reality is, I have a lot of baggage in my life. Hi, my name is Chris, and uh, I carry family baggage. Hi, Chris. See, look, some of our CR people, they uh, know what's up. Now, I'm the baby of my family, the youngest of three. And I have an older brother and an older sister. And uh, when... My parents decided to have a family. They were not able to have children on their own, and so they adopted my sister, they adopted my brother, and then they gave up. And then one day, my mom went to the doctor, and she said, I think I have a tumor. <laughs> I'm the tumor. I think there's a picture that will come up here. There I go. Now, they didn't have ultrasound back, so don't go, they didn't do that. Just play with me, okay? But there I am, the tumor, okay? There I am. Now, uh, with my uh, my parents, uh, my dad calls me a miracle, and uh, or my mom calls me a miracle, my dad calls me an accident, 
And so uh, I figure I'm somewhere in between. And uh, my mom and dad, they're still together. They've been married over uh, 50 years. And they're still loving on each other. And they love me a lot. In fact, they still like to treat me like the baby of the family. Uh, my mom makes me a butterscotch pie whenever I want it, tapioca pudding. And to be honest, I don't mind being the baby. <laughs> uh, it's a pretty good gig. It really is. And uh, they encourage me. In fact, uh, you know, they're just parents that I'm very grateful for. And uh, I just want to put it on the record today uh, that uh, my mother and father are perfect. Okay, so that's recorded, and so everybody will know that. And any examples that I have ever given you guys about poor parenting, um, it did not come from them. Uh, and uh, here's a picture of my parents uh, right there at our wedding. And uh, they would admit to you, too, that they have some baggage. And uh, I'm going to show a picture of my brother and sister, uh, Tim and Lisa, and uh, they both have baggage, too. So my parents kind of inherited this baggage from their parents, and they lovingly gave it to us. And uh, now three kids have baggage that they carry with them. Now, when I was 21, I saw this really cute girl who was 20. And uh, I decided I want to spend the rest of my life with her. And it took me about 19 months uh, to get her to convince, or to convince her that that's what she wanted to. And uh, we got married. And uh, I think there's a picture of my wife. Man, she was smoking hot, wasn't she? I mean, she still is hot, but she was smoking hot, you know, then. I'm going to get in trouble for that comment, I can tell. But anyways, after we got married, uh, guess what I learned about Jennifer? She's got baggage. And then there was my in-laws that I met. And uh, I think we got a picture of them. And uh, they, often, they love me too, and they often listen to me online um, because they live down in Noblesville. And let me just say for the record too that, that they have baggage, but it's less baggage than all the rest of the family. So what happens is we have these two sets of parents... And they both have baggage. Now, when Jennifer and I got married, I was the baby of my family. She's the oldest of her family. She has a younger sister, Janelle. But Janelle has so much baggage, we couldn't even put a picture on up of her. Okay? And just joking, Janelle, if you're listening to this too. I couldn't find the picture. Um, but I'm the youngest. Jen's the oldest. And when we first got married, I was used to being babied all the time. And uh, so the first week, I just acted like, you know, I did with my parents. I didn't do anything. And uh, that lasted for about a week. And I'll never forget it. Jen walked into our apartment, and she went like this. This was back when the head thing was like before the head thing. And she said, I am not your mama, and you are going to pick up these clothes. And uh, I've been picking up clothes ever since then. Now, eventually, one of the ways that we decided that we would deal with our baggage is um, that we would reproduce. Now, I can't show you a picture of that, but um, 
I can tell you, if you look at this picture right here, no, that's not the one. There you go. As you can tell, Jennifer just can't keep her hands off of me. I mean, that's just, you know, kind of the way it is. But uh, we had a baby, and uh, there'll be a picture of her next. There she is. There's Jordan. And uh, we loved her so much that that wasn't enough baggage we wanted to share with our kids. So we had a second one, Shiloh, uh, and there she is. And even though they're really young, there's some times in which I watch them or I talk to them, and I can already tell that they're carrying some of our baggage. My parents' baggage, my in-laws' baggage, my baggage, my wife's baggage. It's just kind of all in them. And it's been all lovingly handed down in this DNA project that we call children. And I know as they get older, they're not going to be satisfied with just what we've given them, but they're going to look around to other people and they'll pick up their baggage as well and they'll walk down the road and journey called life. And then they'll pass that on to my grandkids. And folks, the reason why I spend so much time to do this is because I want you to see that every single one of us are on this journey in which we're carrying baggage. And uh, the truth is, we'd all like to say, oh, I don't carry any, I don't have any baggage. But if you said that, you would simply be living in a bubble, never acknowledging the truth. Now, if we just stopped right there, you all would leave depressed today. You'd be like, oh, this is great news. So glad I went to church today. But the fact is that God loves to take baggage and to make it right. The message is this, that God steps into and He redeems people. He takes broken lives and He makes them healthy. He makes them better. Regardless of your past, God buys us back no matter what the cost is so that we might impact lives and that God would be glorified. We lift Him up, and as we lift Him up, He helps to lift our families up. So the very first thing that I want you to get in this whole history of family is this, that family was God's idea. Family was God's idea. If you remember the creation story, God creates absolutely everything, both seen and unseen. And he says at the end of every single day, it is, you remember what he says? Good. It is good. Then he creates man, and for the very first time in this whole lineage of creation, he says, not good. It's not good. In Genesis, the first book of the Bible, it says this. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. You see, God looked down at man, who he had made in his image, and he realized that there was something that was missing. So what I want to do for the next couple of minutes is to try and get into the mind of God of what He is thinking before He creates woman and before He creates family. I mean, what is He thinking 
that the man really needs. What is it that is not good? John Ortberg is one of my uh, favorite authors. I try to read everything that he writes. He's a pastor in California. And uh, if you're a reader, just remember Ortberg and uh, read anything that he has and try to learn from him uh, because he just uh, he, he does things so well. But he tells the story in which he thinks about what might have been going on with God in those moments just before he created this whole concept called family. And uh, the moment is the moment that he's thinking, now I have Adam, and now what does it look like to have Adam and Eve and their kids? And he kind of imagines a conversation like this. And we'll just have a little story time as I share this story. He imagines that there's this conversation between God and the angels in heaven. And it goes something like this. Imagine that uh, there comes a day that God is there with the angels, and God looks to the angels and He says, I have an idea. I'm going to create the family. And the angels say, what's that? And God says, this is a very exciting idea I have. Actually, I'm excited about all of my ideas. One of the great things about being God is that you never have a bad idea. But this one is going to be quite unique. The family is going to be the way that I connect with people. The way I bring them together in love. And it will work like this. Adult people, grown-up people, will sign up to care for little strangers. And the angels say, do they get paid for it? And God says, no. Actually, that little stranger is going to cost them a lot of money. Not only that, but that little stranger will not even be able to talk at first. And you will have to guess why. It will make all kinds of messes all the time, and you're going to have to clean them up. It will be utterly vulnerable. You will have to watch that kid 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Then, when that 2-year-old, then when they become 2, they will learn to say words like, No! And Mine! And it will throw tantrums in Walmart. And then I am about... See, look, some of you are like, you know that. And then God says, and I'm thinking about creating this thing called puberty. Now, I'm not sure I understand all of this one yet. They will, uh, but what I've got so far is that they will have these strange things called hormones. And then they will go nuts. Odd things will happen to their bodies. They will have pimples and their voices will crack. Then they will grow up. Then, just as they are mature and beautiful and you like to hang out with them, they will move away. And God says to the angels, what do you think about this idea? And the angels kind of put their heads down and they kind of shuffle their feet a little bit and they look to one another and they're like, who's going to tell him? Who's going to tell him? I don't want to tell him. God, it's not going to work. No one's going to want to do this. 
But then God gets really excited. Listen to this. This is the cool part. They won't even know why they want to do it. They'll just look down one day at that little body and those little hands and those little feet and they'll think that that tiny little stranger is beautiful. Even though they look like every single other baby and most babies look like Winston Churchill. (laughs) They'll think that this baby is beautiful. Their baby. And then one day, that little stranger will smile. And they will think they won the lottery. They won't have words to describe it. And one day, that little stranger will say, Dada and Mama. And it will say Dada first because daddies are serving and sacrificial and nurturing and nice. And oh, how I love them. But moms are good too, and so they will say, Dada and Mama. And then one day, those little arms will open up, and they will wrap themselves around the neck of that Mama or Dada. And it's going to be like that grown-up understands for the first time what arms and hands were created for. Now the reality is, folks, all of us in this room have either been a part of creating a baby or we've been a baby ourselves. And God designed a planet in which we all start out that way. Now the reality is, we as a church do not exist just for traditional families. We love single parents and divorced parents, and we have over about half of the people that come to the jar come from uh, single parent, divorced kind of homes. But the one thing that we're all a part of, and in particular that we're called to, is this church family called the jar. And I know that there are some people in this place who have wanted to have babies for a long time, and for one reason or another, they just haven't. But those of us who do have children kind of have an obligation to share with you what we have learned about having gods and of what we've learned in knowing God through that. Because one of the things that has happened in my life is when I had kids, I understood a perspective of God the Father that I didn't know before. And this leads us to our second point. God will never stop loving His kids. God will never stop loving His family. You know, over three years ago, uh, when we brought Jordan home for the very first time, I didn't want to go home. I cried and I was in the hospital room and I think my wife was so exhausted she didn't even know how to move. And, uh, you know, she's like, why are you crying? I'm like, I don't want to take her home. It's so safe right here, you know. And I'll never forget when we got home and we put Jordan down, I remember looking down at her and I thought to myself, what do I do? I mean, like literally, what do I do? 
And now three years later, guess what? I'm still asking, what do I do? But I do know what I didn't do. I didn't look at Jordan on that day and thought to myself, if-then statements. I didn't make up some contract with her. I didn't say, okay, daughter, if you sleep through the night, then I'll feed you in the morning. I didn't say, if you warn us before you go to the bathroom, then I will change your diaper. I didn't say, if you learn to wash my car before you go into preschool, I will love you a little bit more. I didn't say if-then statements to her because she didn't even talk yet. And so I had to say, since you are here and I'm holding you right now, then I will love you. Since you are mine, then I will do everything in my power to keep you safe. Since you are the product of the love of your mom and I and the God that I've given my life to, I will give you my life and protect you and do whatever I can. Since I love you, you almost have anything that you want. And then they learn words. And then it's a little bit more difficult for us to look at them and to actually feel that same way. We want to rationalize with them, and each stage of life that you go through with parenting uh, is different. And I realize for myself that I'm not even close. I mean, our daughter's three and one. I'm not even close to the harder stages yet. So please be praying for me. Like, if you never know who to pray for, pray for me. But folks, I want you to know that God looks down at you today and He says, He doesn't say this. He never says this. If they could just get their act together, then I would love them. But the reality is, God says, I know they're going to flub up and mess up and screw up in this thing called life. But no matter how much they do that, I will never stop loving them. Now, on the flip side, all of us have grown up in families in which there have been conditions placed upon the love that's given to us. In fact, people have made families into if-then statements. People have made families into these if-then kind of statements. Now, maybe in your family unit, it wasn't uh, verbally said, or maybe it was. But if you do this in my family, then I will love you. If you do this, then I will accept you. Maybe it was said verbally. Maybe it wasn't. But maybe it was said with people's eyes or their tone or their actions. Many of us, most of us folks, whether we like to admit it or not, we come from conditional families. And one of the most conditional families in the Bible that we looked at last week and that we'll be looking at throughout this time together is the family of Jacob. I mean, if you take all the dysfunctional families that are in the Bible, and every single one of them had their own dysfunction, but if you took them all, 
Jacob's family seems to win the prize. He just has this knack of kind of completely destroying and making his family system more dysfunctional in every moment of the story. Now last week, we talked about Jacob and his older brother Esau. And how Jacob had basically sold his brother out. He sold him out so that he could receive the inheritance and the property and the money and the blessing from his father. And then Jacob had to run away from his brother because his brother was on the move to try and kill him. His brother Esau was a hunter. He was real good with the bow and arrow. And so what happens is Jacob is constantly on the move. He runs away because his brother is on the kill. And then the scheming of the story continues. Jacob tries to scheme out his uncle Laban out of his two daughters, or his one daughter, Rachel. Now, I know that's kind of weird in the Bible, marrying a cousin, but uh, that's just the way it is. And so he wants to marry this woman named Rachel, uh, who uh, is this beautiful woman. But Laban somehow kind of puts some conditions in the midst of all that, and he switches things around, and he actually has him marry his other daughter, Leah, first. And Leah is um, not beautiful. Uh, she's kind of like in those 80 movies, if any, anyone remember the 1980s, okay? Remember they always had a, a movie and, uh, you know, people would wake up of scenes and they'd put their glasses on and they'd go, wow, this person's hot. When you looked at Leah, it even looked worse, okay? So you got Rachel, who's beautiful, and Leah, who looks horrible. And, and Jacob schemes, but he gets out-schemed, and he actually has to marry both of them. And then his uncle throws in two other maidservants as well, and so Jacob goes from one wife to four. And you can read about all this this week in Genesis 29 if you want to. But Jacob's whole life during this time is if-then statements. If you do this, then I will do that. But squeezed in the middle of these two stories, of the fight with his brother and the fight with his uncle, there is a story, a moment, in which Jacob meets God. And let's go ahead and uh, look at that story. It says, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. In his dream, there above it stood the Lord. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, who was his father or his grandfather, and the God of Isaac, who was his father. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through your offspring. I am with you, and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. 
Now, folks, if you are going to have a dream that includes God, this is the dream that you want to have. I mean, all that we know about Jacob before this is that he is a cheater and a liar and a schemer. And God says, Jacob, even though you are this messed up man, I want you to know that I love you. I've chosen you. I love you, Jacob. It's like God is writing on his seventh grade notebook, you know. I love you. 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 I will be with you forever. I will give you whatever you want. And I will be your God. I have plans for you that you can't even imagine. And Jacob has this huge moment with God. And then in verse 20, rather than Jacob just kind of, you know, accepting this, and Jacob receiving the blessing, he turns it around into an if-then statement. And let's look at verse 20. If God will be with me, and if He will watch over me on this journey I am taking, and if He will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house, if that happens, then the Lord will be my God. And then this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And then all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. You know, I have a feeling that as God is pouring out all of this love on this schemer, he was not expecting for Jacob to give if-then statements back to him. I think God was hoping that Jacob would say something like, Thank you, God. I'm so excited. That's great, God, to have this. But instead, Jacob says, If this, if this, if this, if this, then, God, I will follow you. You know, I don't know about you, but my relationship with God as it's gone through time. There have been different if-then times in my relationship with Him. God, if you do this, then I will do that. But each time that I've done that, it just hasn't worked out that well. But I think most human beings, we have a tendency to kind of have if-then kind of things. Now here's the best news that you're going to hear today. God is not an if-then kind of God. He, God doesn't have if-then kind of love for us. Just like when you look at a newborn baby, you don't say, if you do this, then I will do that. Then I will love you. In the same way, God does not have that relationship with His kids. Rather, this is the relationship that God has with His family. Since then kind of love. God has a since then kind of love with us. Look at this next passage. The Bible says this, This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent us an atoning, a redeeming, a buying back kind of sacrifice for our sins. In other words, He took on all of our sins on His shoulders. So, dear friends, since God loved us, then we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God...
God lives in us, and his love is made complete. Here's how we can break, folks, this, this whole conditional cycle of putting conditions on love. Here's how we can really become an unconditional kind of healthy family. The focus cannot be on yourself, and the focus cannot be on the inadequacies of other people. But the focus has to be on the fact that God loves you. That's the only real way that you will ever be able to embrace the flow of God's love and then share it with other people, is realizing that it all starts because since God loved me. In fact, if I were trying to figure out how to love you, daily I have to wake up and I have to say this, since God loved me, then I will try and love you. That's where it begins. Since God loved me, then I have to try and love you. Folks, it was hard for God to love Chris Bunch. But when he did finally, and I understood that, then I could love other people. Now, folks, I know that there are family situations that are very messy in this place. And for me, just to simply tell you, hey, go and love people, sometimes just doesn't cut it. Some of you have grown-ups who might be living with you right now. They're strung out on drugs or alcohol. They're stealing from you. Some of you are in abusive situations. And it becomes real tricky to know how to love people in situations like that. That's why you might need to get some counseling or practice tough love or one of the great things you can do, 7 o'clock on Thursdays. Come right here and be a part of Celebrate Recovery. It's not just about addiction stuff, but it's about any hurts, habits, or hang-ups that you're struggling with. I love what it says in Romans 12:18 because it gives us a few outs. You ever do that before? Kind of look at Scripture and try to find the outs of Scripture? Oh, you're all holy today, aren't you? Yeah, I get caught there sometimes. Well, here's one of Paul's. He says this, If it is possible, as far as it depends upon you, be at peace with everyone. Folks, sometimes peace is not possible. I mean, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace. You give it all you can. You try to make the relationships right in your family. But the reality is some people don't want to make peace with you. And the key word is everyone. Everyone in your life you should work at trying to make peace with as far as it depends upon you. The person who cuts you off in traffic and you want to give the bird. The person uh, who doesn't mow their yard. The mom whose kids are always kind of corrupting the neighborhood. But it also includes your father and your mother and your brother and your sister and your kids and your crazy Uncle Ed. Because we all have a crazy Uncle Ed. And whoever it is, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. You love people with no conditions Because that's the way that God has loved us. 1 Corinthians 13 is kind of the love chapter of the Bible. Many of you, if you uh, were married, this was a passage that was read during that. And you thought, 
man, I never knew how hard it was going to be to actually fulfill those words. And I thought as we close today, um, we'd kind of do a corporate prayer together. And so if you trust me and if you're willing to, if you could just kind of close your head or close your eyes and bow your head kind of in prayer. I want you just for a second to kind of ask God right now. And so uh, you can close your eyes if you're open to that. And just kind of spend some time with God. And just ask Him to bring to your mind and your heart right now the face or the name of someone in your family. Now, it doesn't have to be the most estranged person. It doesn't have to be the most difficult person. Just ask God to show someone to you that you'll pray for in this kind of last minute. It could be anyone in your family. And if you're here and you don't have blood relatives, then uh, just kind of think of a friend. And so as you have that person's name or their face in mind, I'd like to read this scripture. Love is patient. Will you be patient with that person? Because God has been patient with you. Love is kind. Since God has been so kind to you, will you be kind to them? Love does not envy. Will you not envy them? Love does not boast and is not proud. Will you not be boastful and proud with them? God has not been rude with you. Will you not be rude with them? Love is not self-seeking. It has no hidden agenda. Will you get rid of your hidden agendas with that person? God is not easily angered with you. Will you not be easily angered with this person? God has kept no records of wrongs. He's dropped them. Will you drop the wrongs that have gone against you? Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. Can you find it within yourself to rejoice with this person, with what God is doing in your life, in their life? Love always protects. God always protects you. Can you protect this person more? Love always trusts. How can you trust that person more? Love always hopes. Can you hope the best for this person every day? Love always perseveres. Love never ends. Heavenly Father, I I pray each person who You put before us, people in our family, a name, a face, that You will help us to love them like You love them. Help us to be at peace with them as long as it depends upon us. Give us the strength to remove any conditions and to love them even if it costs us something. Jesus, thank You for Your unconditional love that is so freely given. 
Help us to tap into that today and each day this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, have a great week. Know that you're loved in this place. If you'd like prayer for anything, come on up, and uh, we'll see you at the picnic.